<gasps> what was that? Ah! <laughs> what? I just farted. Guys, stop farting on my podcast. <laughs> Why just farted? Do you mad? Can you guys stop farting for two seconds? <laughs> I just farted again. This is Talk Dying to Me, and I'm your host, Lauren Daly. Someone once told me that kids are like tiny, drunk humans, and it's kind of true. They're clumsy, they have terrible coordination, they're messy eaters. Like adults who may have had too much to drink, kids can be a little hard to understand sometimes, and while their thought process may be hard to follow, when they finally get to the point, it's usually brutally honest. So I thought to myself, who better to talk about death, a subject that so many people shy away from, than a couple of kids? A few years ago, during a family vacation to Disney World, the happiest place on Earth, I sat down with my nephews, five-year-old Trent and three-year-old Hudson, to talk about death. When you die, you might fall. When you die, you might fall. That's what I just said, when you die, you might fall. I mean, sometimes people fart after they die, probably. <laughs> oh my god! Can you listen to me? No, don't touch that. No touching that. It took a while to ease into the conversation. And by a while, I mean 37 minutes and 40 seconds. But they eventually got over the novelty of hearing their own fart noises over a microphone. What does it mean when someone dies? Oh, I know, I know, I know. Okay. If you might be in a, you might be in a box, and you might have no L, and you might die. Oh. And you might, and that box, when you're in the box, they might, like, put you in the fire, or, like, like the Avatar movie, like Pandora movie, like Oh. They put you in a box and you die in there? No, like, sometimes you might be in a box. And you might die. Oh, you die in the box because you have no air? Okay. Trent loses me here. I have no idea what he's talking about. So after our conversation, I sit down to rewatch the movie Avatar, the 2009 sci-fi hit directed by James Cameron. In the opening scene, the main character has a flashback to his brother, who has died sometime earlier. His body was in a cardboard box, which is then put into a fiery furnace to be cremated. Not surprisingly, this scene stood out to Trent, who I realized thought the man had died because he had no air in the box. And then they put you in the fire. Oh, like after you die, they put you in the fire? Yeah, like the Avatar movie. What other types of things die? Bulls and... All kinds of animals die. Mm-hmm. Some get too old. Some hunters get them. Mm-hmm. Dogs die. Cats die. Goldfish die. Because, like, hunters get them. They get too old. When people die, can you see them still? No. No. But they can see us. They can see us? Do they see us all the time? No. How do you know they can see us? I don't know, Mom said that they can see us. 
I go in to ask them if they know of anyone who's died. Grammy died. Grammy died? No, she didn't. Wait, which Grammy? A6. Like Grammy Daly? Yeah. She didn't die. She's still alive. 86. <laughs> For the record, the grandmother they're referring to did die last year. But at the time of this recording, she was very much alive. And it's at this moment I realize that conceptualizing death for a three- and five-year-old might not be as easy as I had expected. They go on to tell me about their dog, Gemma, who had died a few years earlier. Gemma died because she got too old. And Charmaine. Who's Charmaine? Mommy's mommy. She's my mommy, too. Did you know that? And you're my aunt. I'm your aunt, yeah. So your mom died? She did, yeah. That's, and your mom is my grandma. Exactly. And she died in a car accident? She did, yeah. Trent tells me he has a picture of his Grammy Charmaine and his dog Gemma in his room. His mom put them there so he could see them even though they aren't here anymore. What do you think of when you look at her? You mean like Gemma or Charmaine? Both of them. I miss them. Yeah, like when I look at some pictures it makes me like sad. Makes you kind of sad? Yeah, they die, and one of my grandma, one is my dog. It feels like very, very, very sad. I find it interesting, but not surprising, that a kid can grieve a person he's never met. Trent says his mom told him that Gemma and Grammy Charmaine are both in heaven now. So I asked him what he knew about heaven. What do you imagine heaven is like? Dirt? It's dirt. Yeah, like, is it in the sky? Or on the, in the ground. <laughs> it's underground or in the sky, clouds or dirt. It was either clouds or dirt. A year later, I'm back home in New Brunswick visiting my family. Trent's older, more mature. He tells me he got a few things wrong last time we spoke and wants to take another stab at it. What is dying? It's when your heart stops working and you fall on the floor. Mm. And then what happens? And then you, your spirit goes up in the sky, and then you go out of the ground. That's what happens? Yeah. Every time? Yeah. So your spirit goes to the sky, yeah. and you go into the ground. Yeah. What happens to your body? It goes in the ground. We revisit the people he knows who have died, and the conversation centers back on my mom, Trent's grandmother. My grandma, Charmaine. How do you know her? Uh, she is my grandma. As I listen back on my conversation with Trent, I realize that I'm actually not all that skilled at talking about death and dying with kids. There was at least one point in our discussion when I could tell I made Trent feel uncomfortable, where my response to his answers caused him to question his own truth. But you didn't get to meet her before, right? At this point, Trent's eyes grow wide with excitement. He shakes his head wildly up and down. Yes, he is certain. You did? I did. Where? I'm surprised by his answer. He can tell. I can see that he starts doubting himself, like my response to his answering yes to this question made him reconsider what he thought he knew for sure. I forget. You forget? But you think you met her before? Yeah. Where? I forget. Oh, how do you know you met her? Because I think that she 
I saw her before, but I forget where I saw her. A little later in the conversation, Trent tells me about a woman he used to see in his dreams. He says he thinks she's a ghost. It was white. It had black hair. It had eyes. And it had a mouth and a nose. And it looked like a person. Definitely a girl, because it had a dress. She's like black high heel shoes. Like mommy's black high heel shoes, those ones. Oh. They only see it once? A couple. In a different dream. I've thought a lot about this person in Trent's dream. A woman with fair skin, black hair, wearing a dress and black high heel shoes like his mom's. An image of my mom, his grandma, comes to mind. And I wonder, just for a minute, if maybe he was telling the truth about meeting her once, somewhere deep in his subconscious, a place where kids are far more comfortable being than the adults in their lives. This conversation with my nephews really got me thinking about how we communicate to kids around some of the more difficult things in life. And it led me to Andrea Warnick, an expert in how to guide kids and their adults through the harder parts of being human. I'm a registered nurse and a registered psychotherapist. So I actually started this work as a registered nurse. I worked largely in pediatric oncology. And through that, I realized pretty quickly I had no clue how to talk to kids about death. And when I tended to realize is when, you know, a little kid would actually turn to me, usually a kid with cancer, and say, like, am I going to die? And the timing was usually such that the parent had just walked out of the room and it would completely throw me into my panic zone. And I then did some work in adult palliative care as well and realized that you know there were now kids who had parents dying or grandparents dying, and often they didn't even know that their parent had cancer, let alone were dying. And so for me, that was sort of the thing that pushed me over the edge where I was like, okay, I didn't just miss that course. This is like a pretty big gap that really, whether it's a kid who's got cancer themselves or a kid who has somebody else with a serious illness, a lot of parents aren't talking to their kids. And I certainly saw firsthand in the front lines of healthcare that we were providing very little guidance, if any guidance, for families. And it was from that I actually Googled Masters of Death. You guys, she Googled Masters of Death. Did we just become best friends? And up came the word thanatology, which I'd never heard of before. And thanatology is the study of death. And off I went and did a master's in thanatology. Thanatology is the study of death. Thanatos is the Greek root of death. And but really, it's, it's looking heavily from a psychology and sociology perspective of death and dying. Wikipedia talks about thanatology as being the science of dying. Like, I find that it was far more about the art of dying. So now, as a psychotherapist, nurse, and thanatologist, Andrea has dedicated her life's work to supporting grieving children, their families, and their communities. As a registered psychotherapist, I spend a lot of time really working with families and coaching them on how to talk to their kids, but I also do direct work with kids as well. 
a hundred years ago is a very foreign concept. This idea that we would like shelter kids from death or keep them away or not let them be at the bedside as someone was dying. I mean, most people were dying in the home. The kids were there. The kids might be in bed with them, you know, as they're dying and things like that. It's a very new concept, this idea of, you know, sort of outsourcing death and trying to protect kids from this one thing that's going to happen to all of us. The irony here is I think many families who decide not to speak to their kids or try to shelter for their kids from talking about death and dying, it's coming from a good place. They're usually thinking this is going to protect my kids in some way. And the thing that's sad about that is while it's coming from a good place, it's really misguided. My clinical practice has made it so clear about the fact that kids, the vast majority of kids want to be included, right? To different degrees. Some kids want to be right up at the bedside. Some kids don't. But I've never in 20 years of doing this work had a kid ever say, I'm really glad that they lied to me, or I'm really glad that they didn't tell me that my person was dying. I've never encountered that once. When we don't speak honestly, and when we're not inclusive with kids around issues related to death and dying, it's actually scarier for them. We don't protect kids by not talking to them about the hard things in life. In fact, the best protection for them is to prepare them for the hard things that are going to happen in life. We're now at a time where there's a big body of literature around this as well, right? So 30 years ago, I mean, there really wasn't. And so I get that people were just like operating by their instincts of what they thought might be best for their kids. But the reality is we now have a lot of academic studies behind this that really show us what best practice is and very much reinforces this idea of including kids and being honest and talking early to them if there's an illness or somebody dying or has died in their family. When we're not talking to kids and telling them what's happening, they're picking up on the fact that there's stress in the family. They're picking up that things are changing with one of the people in their family from a health perspective and things like that. And if we're not honest about it, kids will use their imaginations to fill in the pieces. Andrea talks a lot about the five C's which is a framework for helping kids navigate the death of someone they love. The five C's being, did I cause this? Can I catch this? Could I cure it? Who's going to take care of me, particularly if a parent is dying? And how will I stay connected? One day I will write a book about all the things kids have told me about how they're convinced they caused the illness or the death in their family. Everything from, you know, my mom yelled at me so much to clean up my room and then she got throat cancer and she died. And if I cleaned up my room, she wouldn't have gotten throat cancer. And it might seem really far-fetched, but it's actually not that different than what we do as adults when we're intensely grieving too. And we do all these what ifs. And if only I'd called five minutes earlier, or I got my person to the doctor a couple weeks earlier, what would this change? And kids just throw their imaginations in there and come in with really sort of elaborate stories. And that's where I think it's so important that we do include them and talk to them. And it gives us the opportunity then to clear up those misconceptions. One of the big things I'd say is the importance and the power of language. The more concrete we make it for kids, the less likely they are to imagine that they're responsible in some way. Andrea recommends using direct language when talking about different serious illnesses and death and dying. In her words, call it what it is. One of the key things that we really know now is call death and dying, death and dying. Don't say it's like a big long sleep. 
right? Which like freaks not only kids who are still napping, but I find all kids of all ages get really freaked out at that, you know, association. And it's not even accurate. Even things like passed away, passed on. I mean, those are very abstract for young kids, but we say so many other things. I mean, the number of families I've worked with where they were like, well, we lost grandpa yesterday and kids have jumped up looking for grandpa because they lose things all the time and find them. And that's where we know that it's really important, call it death and dying. The more uncomfortable we are as a culture with a topic, the more euphemisms there are for it, right? So right now there's more euphemisms in the English language for death than there is for sex. There's over 200 of them in the English language. That's how uncomfortable we've become. And that's why I find by even just calling it what it is, it suggests a level of comfort. You know, it opens up the conversation. Even my work in palliative care, I was always like so surprised about like, I'm on a palliative care unit and nobody is calling it death. It's like expired. Milk expires, right? Like people don't expire. And I think it's just a byproduct of our culture and how uncomfortable with death so many people are. And then we really just pass that right down to kids. Language is also really important when talking to kids about the disease their loved one is dying from, especially when addressing the second of the five C's, which is, can I catch this? You say to a three-year-old, well, daddy's sick, daddy's sick. That three-year-old has no way of knowing that that sickness is any different to the cold or the flu or nowadays COVID, right? And most of the sicknesses, especially, I mean, now more than ever before, that most kids are exposed to, they're spread from person to person. So this is where I would say, or I would coach a family to really say, you know, daddy has cancer. It's different than COVID-19. It's different than a cold or the tummy flu that spreads around daycare. You can hug dad, you can kiss dad, you will not get it from dad. It's called cancer. Even when kids are really little, and this is where I find like young kids are often the ones who get pushed to the sidelines the quickest. Even if you're talking to a two-year-old, I really encourage, and the literature backs it up, use the word cancer. Say ALS. It doesn't mean they're going to understand all of what that means, but they're going to grow into an understanding quicker. It's really helpful to use the right language. And the other key, really, being honest, don't lie to them. Andrea says about 50% of the kids she works with worry about catching the thing that killed their loved one. When it comes to the percentage of kids who worry about who will take care of them when one of their caregivers dies, it's a lot higher. I think for kids, one of the biggest fears is abandonment. When it comes to if a parent died, this fear about being left on their own, like what happens if my other parent or my foster parent, whoever's raising me now, what happens if something happens to them? I'd say 90% of the kids I work with, that is a fear. And I remember being stopped in my tracks around that one once I was working with a family in this, probably one of the biggest houses I've ever been in, in my life. There were no financial issues here, not just based on the house, but from what, you know, I know of the family. And this little girl, she was about seven. Mom was dying, but dad was still healthy and well. And she had actually like counted out all the money in her piggy bank. She had done the calculations and knew how many loaves of bread she could buy. Because she was just like very much like, okay, well, my mom's dying. So that means death can happen. So if my dad dies, how am I going to survive? And that's where I think it's so important for families, even if you have two healthy parents. I mean, we talk to our kids about this all the time. Talk to their kids about who are their guardians. 
And I think of this one little guy um, and dad had recently been killed in a bike accident. He was very from the get go. Well, what happens if you die, mom? Like who's going to take care of me? And like, I would come to do a session and he would be like, Andrea, if my mom dies, can I live with you? He would ask people in the grocery store. And so this little guy was asking anyone and everyone. And a lot of my work was then with mom to help her get to a place where she could talk to him about assuring him that he would not be left to fend for himself. The conversation usually goes something like, most likely, I'm going to be really old by the time I die, and you won't need me or anybody to be taking care of you at that time. But if something were to happen, this is who, like parents put a plan in their well, like tell your kids who their guardian is, who would they live with? And I find that really brings down kids' anxiety. Similar to the approach with the other C's, honesty and direct communication is so important when it comes to addressing the could I cure it question that kids sometimes have when their loved one is dying or has died. This question is really to say, could I or we do something to prevent this death from happening? And in my discussion with Andrea, I learned that this concern can be especially difficult to navigate when a parent or caregiver has chosen to have a medically assisted death. Some families are worried that the kids will interpret it as they're, I'm giving up, I'm not trying hard enough. And I think we have to be so careful about the whole rhetoric, even around like battling cancer and the fight and stuff like that. I just think like that needs to be thrown right out the window. Like you didn't lose your battle. This wasn't a matter of whether you fought or tried hard enough. You know, the vast majority of parents I've worked with who are dying with young dependent kids, there's nothing that they want more than to live. We want to emphasize that mom isn't choosing to die. She is dying because of her ALS. She is dying because of her cancer. She is choosing how to die. She's choosing when to die. And I know there's variations on this, so it's, this is not going to be true across the board, but the vast majority of times when I'm working with families and there's dependent kids, that person's medically assisted death is timed where they're pretty close to dying, right? It's not like they have years left to live. Kids don't necessarily have a way of knowing that. And that's where I want to make sure that they understand that, you know, A, again, we know that mom is definitely dying because of her illness, but not only that, that the death would be happening relatively soon. So helping them understand that it wasn't like mom could have lived for 10 more years with this illness. I think another thing that it's super important for people to have on their radar when supporting kids who are grieving a death is that a big part of supporting them is helping them, the kids figure out what does it look like to have an ongoing relationship with the person who died? What does it look like to keep this kid deeply connected to their person? That brings us to the final of the five C's, staying connected with your person after they've died. I think that's a piece that is actually just overlooked a lot that people don't really think about. When I hear a kid say, well, I don't have a dad anymore, I will gently but firmly say, you do have a dad. I think it's so important that we give them this message of death does not end the relationship. Your dad didn't stop being your dad because he died. And I do think that part of the challenge for us in modern day in this part of the world 
is that a lot of people aren't connected to religious and spiritual institutions the way they used to be, right? And so many of our rituals typically around death and dying were connected to those institutions. So I find it like in my personal life and in the sort of families that I support, a big part of this work, especially with kids, but really with adults as well, is helping people discover rituals and ways of staying connected and what that looks like to continue to be in relationship. One of the activities I love, which I learned directly from a kid, her parent had died in a car accident. She, out of the blue, had said, she was probably about nine, and she said, like, I want to make an altar for my mom. And I remember her dad being like, an altar? Like, that's really strange. Like, that's not language we use in our family or anything else. Like, I don't know where that came from. And so what we actually did was, I mean, I made the mistake of going to Ikea and getting one of those, like, because she described to me what she wanted. But it was like one of those little boxes that you build, but came in like 72 pieces and it took forever. But it was so cool. She like painted this box. She put mom's glasses in one of the little drawers. She had some other stuff from mom. She got those like battery-operated tea lights. There's a little framed picture of mom on top of it. Like, it was a place for her to go and be with mom, you know, and feel like she can connect with mom. And it was so creative. And that's something that, you know, I've now shared with tons of kids. Kids love doing that. A great one that I, I really love doing as well is that when we're heading into Mother's Day and Father's Day, a couple weeks before, I like to do this activity with kids where we get some sort of perennial flower and these big pieces of paper will we'll draw messages and get them to draw messages to the person who had died and everything else. And then there's instructions for turning that into a planter. And so then I like send them home with the planter and their messages all over this paper and then they can actually plant it on Mother's Day or Father's Day. And I talk to them about the symbolism that, you know, as the roots of that plant eat through that paper, like all the messages that they've put out there to their person is going to become part of that plant. Part of the reason I'm so passionate about this work is, look, we're not going to stop, in most cases, we're not going to be able to stop the death from happening. Half the time when I'm working with families, it's already happened by the time I'm seeing them as well. But that's not the part we can control in most circumstances. What we can control and shape is that whole story around the death. Whether a child thinks that they're responsible for their mom's death or knows that it wasn't their fault in any way, right? Whether a family does learn how to do grief together. Those are very powerful forces when you're grieving and you're really deeply missing someone and you have to use sort of emotional and psychological energy to try to even figure out how they died in the first place and try to contain yourself so you're not making anybody else in your family or you, the way you interpret it is that you're making other people more upset. And that's where it's so important that we just know that for all that we can't control or stop from happening, when it comes to children and grief, there is a ton that we can shape, which can be deeply influential to their grief process. If you're close to a child who is grieving, chances are you also lost someone you love. Maybe a spouse, a parent, a sibling, or a best friend. And caring for a little person whose heart is broken while your own heart is breaking can feel impossible. That's a huge challenge for adults when they're grieving and they're in the trenches of their grief themselves and now they're supporting children who are grieving as well. I find that one of the misconceptions is that, you know, we don't want the kids to see us 
so upset. So I have a lot of families I work with where they'll try to do their crying like in the shower where it kind of gets drowned out or like in the bed at night. And it actually doesn't serve people well when parents are thinking like, I need to withhold my grief in order to support my kids. And that's where I really encourage as adults to model a healthy grief process for kids. If your kid's asking you questions or you're just talking about the person or just missing your person, it's okay to cry with them. So we can't just do this in isolation of the adults who are supporting the kids. We need to really work on helping adults have their own healthy grief process. To be honest, if we can help that family and we can help a surviving parent or caregiver with a healthier grief process, that's going to go the furthest towards supporting a healthy grief process in their kids. And there's a ton of research really backing this up. I talk about grief bursts a lot. I mean, you talk to somebody who's 80 who had a child die 60 years ago, there'll still be grief bursts for most people. That is totally healthy. It's not pathological at all. It's really grounded in their love for that person. If you are having a grief burst of the intensity that it's knocking you to your knees and it seems like you're out of control, that can be difficult and scary for your child to witness. And by all means, go to those places, do that. I find it's much healthier to do it than not. But if you can try not to do that in front of your kids when it's that intense and overwhelming, but in the more of the day-to-day emotional expression, if you're tearing up or you're crying, it's really important to let kids know that it's okay that I'm crying. I'm really sad, but I'm still okay and I'm still able to take care of you. Even down to the nitty gritty of saying to a child, when you talk about your dad, I may cry sometimes, I may be sad, and that's okay though. You're not making me sad by talking about your dad or talking about your brother who died. I'm already sad. And when you actually talk about them, just sometimes it helps my feelings come to the surface. And that's actually a helpful thing. And then we're also teaching kids, like when they're adults, it's okay for them to express emotions. It's okay for them to do grief and feelings and vulnerability in front of other people. Because if we don't narrate that for kids, often I'll find that they'll fall into the trap that many adults do too. That if I talk about the person who died and then their person starts crying, I've made them sad and I've made it worse. I used to think that the sum of my family's grief was greater than its individual parts, and that's why we couldn't talk about it. I didn't think we could survive our collective pain. Almost 30 years later, through my discussion with Andrea, I've learned that families can not only survive the process of grieving together, they can grow stronger and more connected through their grief. And there's actually some really interesting research that came out just in recent years. And it was looking at parents when a child died. But what it's called is partner-oriented self-regulation. And it's basically speaking to what you're talking about. I mean, overly academic, but essentially saying that they found when you had a two-parent couple and a child died, if the parents, as often happened, got into this tendency of withholding their own grief response out of an effort to protect their partner, thinking it would be harder, The actual reality was if they were doing that, it made the grief way more complicated than the couples who could learn how to actually do it together and the messiness of that, what that entails. What I see so often in my practice is that going intergenerationally as well. 
You know, there's this beautiful quote by a bereaved parent, and it says, talk about my child who died and I may cry, but don't talk about my child and you'll break my heart. And I'd say that's true for most people who are grieving. The scariest thing is to think that your person is going to be forgotten. A big part of Andrea's job is preparing kids for the death of a loved one. This includes walking them through what to expect as their person's body is dying, what it will look like after they die, and what they might see at something like a funeral. That's where I do find that some people's natural inclination is it will be traumatic for the kids to see. And in fact, it's often just the opposite. It's important to have an approach of being honest and us as adults opening up the conversation, inviting kids to ask any questions, but then letting that individual child lead us in terms of how much information do they want to know. Is this a kid that if mom's dying is actually going to benefit from us preparing them for what to expect, what it's going to look like. This kid probably hasn't seen anybody die before. So if we just leave it to their imaginations, that can be more scary for some kids. Because I'll often ask, like, do you want to know what to expect as mom gets closer to dying? Some kids are like, I don't really want to know until we're there. And some kids are like, yeah, this is what I'm imagining. And it's usually more gruesome what they're imagining than what the actual experience is going to be. I have no qualms about kids seeing bodies, right? Or touching bodies or anything like that. I prepare kids for funerals quite often, right? I've even prepared kids to go into cremation witnessings and things like that as well. And people really get worked up about that. But I find more often than not, they'd rather participate than imagine what it's going to look like. There's something so visceral, like when you actually see that body being able to understand death in a different way than when you're just imagining it. One of the things that surprised me most in preparing kids to go to funerals, I would explain, and then dad's body is going to be in this box, and we call it a casket, and if it's going to be open, I'd explain, and I always do say, like, dad's legs are there too, even if you can't see them and everything else. I had a number of kids come back and be like, Andrea, my dad's head was there too. And I'm like, what do you mean his head was there? And they were like, you told us his body would be in the casket. And it honestly wasn't on my radar at all that for so many kids, like bodies considered neck down. So now whenever I'm explaining, like when kids are going to see a body, I will say, you know, like your dad's body will be there and his head. And I'm very, and I think if parents think like, what is she talking about? But I, it totally shocked me, but it happened enough times that I absolutely am clear about it now. Kids are concrete thinkers. They consider things in a very literal way. It's like Trent thinking that the man at the beginning of Avatar died because he was in a box with no air. They take things at face value. But we know that so much about death, about losing your most important person, isn't concrete. It defies our logic and leaves us with imperfect answers and even more questions, especially when it comes to conversations about what might come next. I do find another pitfall to be is often people will try to make heaven or the afterlife seem really concrete, thinking it's helpful for kids, where I find more often than not it can confuse them. It makes it 
sounds like it's this shopping mall around the corner. And that's where you can often get kids being like, well, I want to go there too. Not because they actually want to die, but because they want to be reunited with the person that they're missing. I had one dad and he had said like, as the kid was going to bed, well, mommy's a star now. And like four-year-old wakes up in the middle of the night and is like, which one, which star is she? And that's where I really encourage families back up. When you're talking about death with a kid, first start with the physical, the body and the head stops working. It will never work again. Don't even go into the existential until you really made sure, even if the kid's three, four years old, that they understand that part. I mean, then you can talk about and wonder about the mystery or your belief systems and things like that. Try not to be overly concrete about it. Try to leave some room for mystery. I keep saying that they're concrete thinkers, but I'm always really amazed as well. They are on one level, and yet some of the questions that they ask can be very abstract. I, you know, I know one kid said to me, and her mom had just died, and she was probably seven or eight, and she said, you know, the only thing my dad can't answer for me is, does everything happen for a reason, or are some things really random? And I was like, whoa. I think one of the pitfalls we often fall into with kids is we don't necessarily want to open up with the questions because we're not sure what to do if we don't have the answer. But for this little girl's question, I was just honest and I said, like, it's not that your dad isn't sharing with you the answer. He doesn't know the answer. What you're wondering about right now is something that so many adults are wondering about as well. I wonder about it all the time. One of the most important things we can know in supporting kids around issues related to death and dying, if they ask you questions you can't answer, that is okay. Throughout history, there's always been a lot more room for mystery in our lives than there is now. We're such an information-seeking society, and we're used to being able to Google the answer, and death really defies that. When it comes to the unanswerables, then our job is to wonder alongside with kids. Andrea would tell you that contrary to what people might think, The hardest part about all of this isn't finding the right words, or not having all of the answers, or navigating what often feels like an impossible conversation. For families who are doing this with their kids, they realize pretty quickly the hardest part is actually to bear witness to their kids' sorrow. For so many people, adults too, who are grieving, they've never felt feelings that intense before. It can be overwhelming and it can be scary. And that's where part of the job is to hopefully create safe places for kids to feel this intensity of feeling. And that's a part that's not about language or anything. It's about this act of learning how to stand in the fire of that emotional intensity. That's where I'm really encouraging parents not to say anything. Just be in that space with your kid. If your child is having a grief burst, just hold the space for them, whether you're touching them or not, but you're there with them. Don't run the other way, right? And we want to build up their confidence for them to know it's okay and it's healthy to feel that intensity of feelings. And one of the healthiest things we can do for them is build up their sense of confidence that they can survive that intensity of feelings. And that's where I really maintain the most challenging parts, especially for parents, but I'd say as professionals, we struggle with it as well, is that act of bearing witness. There's no easy way around these moments. You've got to walk straight through them. Grieving alongside the people you love, especially the little people you love, 
is one of the most difficult things a person can survive. But we can do hard things. We can have hard conversations. Let them crack us wide open and make us brave enough to stand in the fire for the people we love. That's it for this month's episode of Talk Dying to Me. A huge thank you to Andrea Warnick. For more information about the important work that Andrea does and for additional resources on how to support kids through grief, you can check out our website, talkdyingtome.com, under today's episode's show notes. I'd also like to thank Trent and Hudson, my very dear nephews, who helped with today's episode. Today's show was written and produced by me, Lauren Daly. The post-production work was done by the team at Resonate Recordings. Our theme music is by Kevin McLeod. Our graphics are by Wiki Turton. If you like what we do, please take a moment to leave a review. It's the number one way you can support the show. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Talk Dying to Me. Thanks for listening, and don't forget, one day, you're gonna die.